0: Wednesday, the 3rd of August, 2016, Aroborga, Sweden. The authorities receive a panicked emergency call from a holiday home on the shore of Jalmaren Lake. In a case that was voted on by my Patreon and channel members, we're going to explore the horrific and complicated case of the Swedish cottage murders. People say Ted Bundy didn't show any emotion. I showed emotion. following episode is not suitable for those under the age of 13. Viewer discretion and parental guidance is advised. Before we delve deep into this case, I'd just like to thank Magellan TV for sponsoring this episode. I'm sure you've heard of Magellan TV before, especially on my channel, and it's not without good reason. Magellan TV is my absolute go-to for all of my documentary needs. With a wide range of documentaries from space, nature to true crime, and with a 4K at no extra cost, it's the perfect place to wind down after a long day while still learning something new. Magellan TV actually adds between 15 to 20 hours of brand new content every single week so if you're worried about running out of true crime content to watch, worry no more. I've just watched Super Tornado, Anatomy of a Mega Disaster. On May 22nd, 2011, one of the most devastating tornadoes in American history struck Joplin, Missouri carving a mile-wide path of destruction and death. Scientists descended on the city to find out what made this tornado so destructive. This film visits Joplin at the five year mark as its people continue to pick up the pieces and struggle to make sense of one of the worst natural disasters ever to hit the heartland. Be sure to use the link at the top of the description or the link in the pinned comments and use your one month free trial to go watch Super Tornado Anatomy of a Mega Disaster. And once you've finished it, dive deep into Magellan TV's extensive true crime collection. As I said before, new documentaries like Super Tornado Anatomy of a Mega Disaster are added to Magellan TV weekly, so do not sleep on this offer. Grab your one month free trial using the links below, and thank you to Magellan TV for constantly supporting this channel and making content like this video possible. Now, back to the case. Wednesday, the 3rd of August 2016. Arborga, Sweden, a town that 14,000 residents call home in the west of the Mälardalen region, boasting a rich cultural heritage and enveloped by stunning natural beauty. It was also a town that the Moller family were well accustomed to, as since the late 1990s, they had owned a large property located to the south of Arborga. This property, which they used as a family holiday home, was known as Gran and was surrounded by breathtaking beauty. Lining the road leading up to the property, which consisted of numerous different buildings, stood lush green forest trees. The holiday home even had a pier that jutted out into the Hjalmarlin, which is Sweden's fourth largest lake. Now, the Muller family consisted of Joron Muller and Anne Christina Muller, who had been married to one another since they had been young. Together, they had two daughters, Ulrika and Johanna. Johanna was three years younger than Ulrika. Joran had been a very successful entrepreneur, even at one point running a business with his daughter Yurika called pearls for girls and that company ended up being sold in 2011 for a substantial profit. The family were one with a robust financial backing and their holidays at their holiday home were always a welcome and much needed break. However, Hyoren and Anne had also bought a motorhome which allowed them to explore limitless holiday destinations instead of being confined to the area around the holiday home. Hyoren had retired from his professional life and the couple had begun travelling together to see more of the world. The retirement naturally led them to begin thinking about selling Grand Leiden. It was a burdensome property to stay on top of when they weren't there all the time. The couple just wanted the freedom to go wherever they pleased. And so in the spring of 2016, the couple decided that they would put the holiday home up for sale and so they contacted an estate agent and hired a photographer to get Grand Leiden listed on the market. Their daughter, Johanna, hadn't been pleased about selling the uh, holiday home, telling the rest of the family that her parents shouldn't sell it because it is, quote, a good place to gather. Regardless, the couple decided to move forward with the sale of the property and decided that they needed to head over to the holiday home to clean out the outbuildings before any viewings could occur. They ordered a container I'm not sure whether this container is like um, like a skip um, or like some kind of larger transport container but they ordered this um, to be delivered to the property on August 3rd 2016 to help with the clearing out. The outbuildings themselves contained the possessions of all of the family members including furniture and other items that had actually been Johanna's. Anne and Hiran arranged for Johanna to travel to the holiday home to collect her things on the 2nd of August 2016, the day before this container was due to be delivered. And so on Tuesday, the 2nd of August, 2016, Anne and Johan traveled to Grand Leiden, arriving at around 2 p.m. When the couple arrived, there was already a moving truck and car at the property. Johanna had been there alongside three other people, David Bloomston Lund, who was her son, Mohamed Rajabi, who was her boyfriend at the time, and Jafar Jafari. We'll talk about these people later on in the case. Regardless, when Anne and Johan had arrived that afternoon, the group of people had that had been gathering, they were just getting ready to leave when they arrived. Johanna's possessions had already been packed into the moving truck to be taken to a storage unit that she had rented until she could figure out what to do with her stuff. The group had gained access to the holiday home using a set of house keys, which had been stored in a hen house on the grounds. It's interesting to note that Johanna would later state that she wasn't sure whether those keys were returned to the hen house or not. Regardless, the group departed the family holiday home and Johanna let her parents know that she was planning on visiting the following day with two of her children who were twins. And so everybody bar Anne and Johan left the property. Usually, when it had just been Joran and Anne residing at the holiday home, Anne would go out into the forest to pick flowers and the like, while Joran would do general groundskeeping such as mowing the grass and things like that. Occasionally, they would sit on the pier together and chat away about all manner of things. Anne would typically head on up to bed at around 10pm, sleeping on the right side of the bed with her husband, Joran going to bed a little later than she did. Yoran liked to watch the late news before going up to bed, from around 10 15 to 10:20 pm. This was a routine that was practically set in stone for the couple and one that the whole family knew all too well. Due to the bedroom that they slept in being too small, the couple always left the bedroom door wide open while they slept to prevent it from getting too hot and they always made sure that the front door to the house was locked at night. Notably, the front door was shaped in such a way that it had to be locked in a certain kind of way had like a knack to it. Though Joran often drank in the evenings while at the holiday home, it's unclear whether Joran always locked the front door properly. On the evening of Wednesday the 3rd of August 2016, Joran and Anne finished their dinner. Anne had been drinking wine, with Joran drinking beer and whiskey and as per their set-in-stone routine, Anne turned in for the night at around 10pm and soon fell asleep. She didn't notice her husband joining her in bed, the next thing she remembered was that she was awoken by somebody elbowing her, at least that is what she initially had thought. Anne assumes that Joran had elbowed her due to her snoring to get her to stop, so she sat up in bed and was confronted by a shadowy figure, almost straddling her husband Joran in a cross-legged position. Anne exclaimed, quote, Yoran, what are you doing? She got no answer. The next thing she remembered was the figure suddenly being on top of her and attacking her with a knife before she felt unconscious. Anne didn't know for how long she had been unconscious when she woke up, but when she did come to, she could hardly see anything. There was blood everywhere. Anne reached out for her husband who had been beside her before lying back down on the bed. She would later recall how it felt so warm, wet and comfortable in the bed. Anne wasn't all too sure how long she remained in the bed, but she did pass in and out of consciousness until she came to the sudden realisation that she needed to do something. She pulled herself from the bed and managed to get to the bathroom. Anne stared at herself in the bathroom mirror, but she didn't recognise herself. She briefly thought about taking a shower, the shock impairing her cognitive functions. Eventually, Anne managed to get down the stairs to the bottom floor of the property. She immediately noticed the front door had been wide open. Anne made her way to the living room and picked up the phone. She first phoned her oldest daughter, Yorika, but ended up hanging up the phone as Yorika didn't pick up. Anne doesn't remember doing so, but the phone records showed that she had tried to phone her husband Yoran as well at this time. Tragically, Joran had sustained fatal injuries as a result of the attack and had quickly succumbed to the wounds that had been inflicted on him. The fact that Anne had tried to call her husband, knowing what had happened to him, just shows the state of shock that she had been in at that time. She then placed a call to 112, which is the emergency services number in Sweden, at 11.09pm. We have a recording of the SOS call that Anne placed that evening, which we're going to take a listen to. Of course this recording is in Swedish, but we have obtained a translation of what Anne said to the authorities in the call, which I'll overlay on the screen. If you're more Familiar with Swedish and can, I would greatly appreciate if a you could confirm this translation that we've got of this call down in the comments. Though don't, don't feel like you have to. Let's take a listen. You're 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 my I have Okay. Jag tror att jag någonting när vad är inne där Anne remained on the phone with the authorities for around 45 minutes trying to explain to the police how to get to the holiday home A police patrol car and an ambulance eventually arrived at the property and immediately they began asking Anne questions about what had happened The actual events of what followed were unclear to Anne The police asked if she had any enemies that could have done this to her family and she told them that there was only one person that came to mind Her youngest daughter Johanna. The authorities at around that same time confirmed that sadly her husband Joran had passed away though she refused to believe it. The 65 year old woman was then taken by the ambulance and rushed to the local hospital. She was operated on for 4 hours and needed a total of 68 stitches for the severe lacerations that she had sustained. Anne and Joran had both sustained about 24 and 23 stabbing wounds to the upper body respectively, and the wounds appeared to have been almost random not showing anything that was indicative of the killer trying to hit a vital organ or having any medical understanding of where those organs may be Yoran sadly was determined to have passed as a result of blood loss and doctors concluded that Anne would likely have also died from blood loss if she had waited any longer Investigators rushed to try to find out who had committed such a gruesome attack But first, the police had to conduct home visits to both Johanna and Ulrika to inform them of their father's death and the current medical state of their mother. It's interesting to note that Anne was actually initially arrested on suspicion of murdering her husband, which sickened her to the core, though this preliminary investigation into Anne was dropped after a few days. The police quickly turned their attention to the couple's youngest daughter, Johanna, and her boyfriend, Mohamed. Rajabi. Maria Johanna Elizabeth Muller, known as Johanna, was born on the 15th of January 1975 to Joran and Anne Muller in Eskilstuna, which is where she grew up with her older sister Ulrika and her parents. According to Johanna's own later accounts, she claimed to have always been a daddy's girl when growing up, with her father taking her hunting and fishing. She claimed that she never really had a close relationship with her mother, as she believed she had died in the womb, and her mother had expected to give birth to a stillborn child. Though when she was born alive, Johanna claims her mother had difficulty bonding with her. Again, this is according to Johanna. Growing up, Johanna claims that she never hugged her mother and felt rejected by her, and excluded from the relationship that her mother had with her older sister. Further, she alleged that despite the seemingly loving relationship between Johanna and her father, between the ages of 5 to 13, she alleged that her father sexually abused her. This led her to allegedly attempt to take her own life via an aspirin overdose at the age of 14. At the age of 7, Johanna had started taking part in gymnastics classes and she quickly developed an interest in animals and cooking. According to a former classmate of hers, she gave the general impression that she had a good upbringing and came from a stable and well-off home. She did well in school, graduating from the ninth grade in 1991 with a good grade point average though it was at around the same time that she began to misbehave and act out. According to her mother, Anne and Johanna had a lot of problems with Johanna ever since she was in her teens. She apparently fought everything. Johanna had many boyfriends throughout her teenage years, and she was apparently seen as being a pretty quote, boys magnet at school, with boys allegedly doing anything for her, and she allegedly liked the power that she had over others. Regardless, Johanna ended up dropping out of high school. By 1993, at the age of 18, she revealed to her family that she was three months pregnant with her boyfriend at the time, Magnus Blomsterlund. Johanna and her boyfriend then got married that same year and they welcomed their first child, Amanda Blomsterlund, into the world. And in 1996 and 1997, Johanna and her husband gave birth to their second child David Blumsterland and their third child Julia Blumsterland respectively. It wasn't too long afterwards that Johanna began to feel herself getting bored with family life and bored in her relationship with her husband and so she actually engaged in an affair with her neighbour. This saw her husband divorce and leave her and Johanna remained with her neighbour for a while before getting bored of him too and moving on. At some point during all of this Johanna had decided that she wanted to go back to school in order to get a career as a chef it's so unclear what success she had with her ventures into the culinary industry as by the year 2000 she had started studying in the social work program at the university of Orebro. In 2003 she ended up getting pregnant for a fourth time with another man by the name of Per Yamelaisson. Some sources claim this man to have actually been a high school principal, but we couldn't verify the information. Some even allege that it was her own high school principal, but we couldn't verify that. Whatever the case, Johanna gave birth to her fourth child, Alexander Yamalison, uh, in 2003. Johanna and Per lived together for a number of years, but eventually went their separate ways. Johanna ended up graduating from college at the age of 32. As we discussed much earlier on in this case, Johanna's father and her older sister had substantial success working together on a business venture, though due to this, Johanna apparently felt inferior due to her having student debt and four kids, which meant she hadn't much money, while her parents and older sister were thriving financially. At some point between ending things with the father of her fourth child and the early 2010s, Johanna created a profile on an online dating website and met a police officer who she dated for a while. We were unable to find all too much out about this relationship though what we do know is that in either 2011 or 2012 Johanna began a relationship with a man called Sila. and Sila actually moved from the Stockholm area to Esklastuna to be with Johanna fairly soon after they had started their relationship together. In December of 2012, the couple welcomed twins Adam and Laura Möller into the world Johanna's fifth and sixth children. On account of alleged domestic issues, Johanna's father actually bought her and the twins an apartment where they could live in the summer of 2014. Her father had hoped that just Johanna and the twins would live in the apartment and not with Aki, who he had conflicting opinions about. Regardless, Aki did end up actually moving in with Johanna and the twins in this apartment. As a side note, it is unclear where Johanna's other children lived at this point. They likely stayed with their fathers and part-time stay with Johanna, but it's really not clear. Johanna would describe her relationship with Aki as being violent, with Aki allegedly being abusive towards her. She also claims that Aki had been using drugs, but we were unable to confirm this information. It came as a surprise to her friends and family when, in late 2014, Johanna announced that she and Aki were to get married in December of that same year, as her friends and family had been under the impression that the pair had no longer been a couple. A few weeks before the wedding itself, on the 25th of November 2014, Johanna took out life insurance on herself and um, Aki, and it appeared that Johanna had been in a rush to get the life insurance applications processed. The insurance company had asked the couple to both undergo health examinations, which Aki agreed to go and do. However, Johanna refused to go and have her health examination as she alleged that she had been unable to afford one despite the fact that the couple had the finances at the time to allow her to have one done. It was speculated that the reason she actually abstained from the health examination was due to the fact that she had no intention of going forward with her own part of the life insurance plan. Also in 2015, Johanna alongside a colleague decided to work together and form a private company that provided accommodation for unaccompanied refugee minors. We'll revisit this company a little later on, but I feel in order to understand Johanna's situation further, we need to take a look at her financial situation. Ever since she left her home at the age of 18, she had continued to receive financial support from her parents on a regular basis, though Johanna never seemed to have enough money to fund her extravagant lifestyle. Her parents had purchased her a car, paid her rent, and helped with various debts, totaling over 600,000 Swedish krona. They helped her out, financially, whenever she needed it. Johanna's mother took extensive records of all the money that they had provided to Johanna and of all the transactions, which showed the degree to which they had supported her. But instead of Johanna using this money to pay her debts, she instead used it to buy plastic surgery. Despite all this, it appeared that Johanna and Aki's marriage had been going well. That would be until August of 2015. In the morning of the 8th of August 2015, the lifeless body of Aki Paisaila was found floating in a shallow portion of the Galmarin lake. The shoreline he was discovered in was nearby the very same cottage where Johanna's parents would later be attacked the following year. When Johanna woke up that morning and discovered Aki was not in the cabin, she stated that she had assumed he was out fishing. However, after she noticed that he had abandoned his phone on a nearby pier, Johanna called for emergency services at 8.54am. Emergency workers quickly discovered Aki's remains in the lake, near the same pier his phone was abandoned on. At the point of his autopsy, Aki had been dead somewhere between 12 to 24 hours, but due to activity on his phone, it is assumed that his time of death was some point after 9.19pm on the 7th of August. His lungs were bruised and had traces of water in them, leading the investigation to label his death a drowning with unknown causation. His blood alcohol level was a 1.36, meaning he was likely intoxicated at the time of his death, adding credit to the theory that his death was likely accidental. Regardless of his level of intoxication, those who knew Aki were shocked by this, as they knew he was an active man and a strong swimmer. At the time, this was the end of Aki's case. However, after the incident that would follow a year later, the case was actually reopened on suspicion that Johanna had been behind her husband's death as well. Emergency staff, who had arrived on the scene in the morning of the 8th of August, had reported strange behaviour from Johanna. In her account of the morning and night prior, Johanna stated that she, Aki and their two twin children had come out to the cabin in order to celebrate Aki's birthday with a large meal. She stated that as they sat and ate the meal on the pier nearby, Aki felt displeased with the meal she had provided and an argument followed. After this argument, she stated that she took the twins back to the cabin and put them to bed and then she fell asleep herself, not leaving the cabin until the following morning. As you will recall, Johanna had said she'd assumed Aki was fishing until she discovered his phone on the pier. There were, however, several issues with Johanna's retelling of events. First of all, her claim that she had not left the cabin until the morning of the 8th after settling in for the night on the 7th was proven to be false. Investigators found that her cell phone pinged off three cell phone towers around the lake between 8.19pm and 8.59pm due to texts being sent on the night Aki died, a time slot startlingly close to Aki's assumed time of death. One specific cell tower, referred to as Bishop's Wreck Mast, could not have been pinged by her cell phone from inside of the cabin nor by the pier, meaning she would have had to have left that area that night. Another contradiction to her story. Johanna was proven to have phoned her daughter Amanda Bloomstaland at 8.30am on the morning of the 8th and mentioned nothing about Achi's absence to her. Emergency personnel found it odd that when they were contacted by Johanna, that she had not taken measures to locate Aki herself, almost as if she knew there would be no recovering him. A fireman who had arrived on the scene to help look for Aki was the one to discover his remains, which were located mere meters from the pier, very well visible from the pier where Aki's phone was found. This firefighter stated later he felt that it would have been impossible to have been on the pier that morning without seeing Aki's body in the shallow water. Another strange factor of the investigation was the water found in Aki's lungs. It was determined to be water that could not have come from the lake based on diatoms and other solubles in the water. The water found in his lungs was determined to be more closely related to well water than water from the lake, from which his remains were recovered from. Worsening the theory of Johanna's guilt was the inclusion of testimony from people who knew her, people who claimed that she, on various occasions, had attempted to convince them to murder Aki. Various accounts from friends and family members describe Johanna's interest in having Aki killed. Johanna was described as having several plans for Aki's murder, ranging from stabbings to having furniture dropped on him in a stage accident. One of those testifying this was Johanna's aforementioned daughter, Amanda Blumsterland, who claims that her mother would often paint Aki to have been a violent abuser, though those who knew Aki described him as the very opposite. This lie extended as far as her father, who rented out an apartment, as we said, for her and the twins, as he truly believed that it was unsafe for Johanna and the children to be under the same roof as Aki. These accusations were supported by other examples of Johanna's manipulative tendencies. It was proven that Johanna had forged Aki's signatures on the life insurance policy that totaled 2 million Swedish krona in the event of his death. According to those who knew Achi, he had no idea that this life insurance policy had been filed at all. The company that this policy was filed with testified later that steps were taken quickly to ensure that Achi's side of the life insurance policy would pay out but none of the same steps were taken to ensure the same for her half. This led the investigators and the company itself to believe that Johanna had no intention of ever utilizing the portion of the life insurance policy that would pay out in the case of her own death. One final factor played into the suspicions around Johanna, the fact that Aki had recently met another woman. Aki had on multiple occasions spent time with her, taking her on expensive trips and talking with her extensively. This final, major factor was seen as the likely motive, if Johanna was the truly the killer. If Aki and Johanna were to divorce, the life insurance policy that Johanna had taken out would have been annulled. She would get no money if he were to die. These circumstantial factors are all strongly implicating, resulting in Johanna being convicted of murdering Aki. This, however, would not last. Johanna would later be acquitted of the crime, with the court claiming there was no definitive proof that Johanna was behind Aki's death, which was relabeled as a quote, likely swimming accident once more. On top of everything else that had been going on in this case, there was also a sex scandal that came out against Johanna in the summer of 2016, before the murder of her parents. Johanna's manipulation, as you might have assumed, bled into her professional life as well. You see, Johanna was a social worker who worked with a company focused on placing unaccompanied young and minor refugees with families to help them get settled in their new country. Many of these individuals were between the ages of 15-25, to an age range that Johanna displayed Interesting. Former co-workers of Johanna cited instances of her having inappropriate sexual relations with her clients, as well as some of these young men, many of which were seemingly non-consensual. In a scandal that would leak to the media, Johanna was caught on video extorting teen refugee boys into having sex with her. She did so with the threat of deportation if they did not comply forcing them to choose between her unwanted sexual advantages and their right to remain in Sweden. Despite how egregious the situation was, there is a notable lack of coverage that we could find on this aspect of Johanna's criminal history and seemingly nothing major came of it, there didn't seem to be any actual prosecution there. After the horrific murder of Joran Moller and the savage attack on his wife Anne, the investigators' sights turned to Johanna and her boyfriend at the time Mohamed Rajabi, and fortunately it wouldn't be long before they would get the break in the case that they needed. Mohamed Rajabi would actually confess to the murder and attempted murder, but also confess that he had been forced to carry out the attack by none other than Johanna. He alleged that while Johanna hadn't been present during the attack, she had been the one who planned and manipulated Mohammed into committing it and that she had been waiting outside in a getaway car. Mohammed Rajabi had been born in Iran on the 18th of October 1374, according to the chronology of Iran. That would translate to the 8th of January 1996 in western chronology. He had actually been a citizen of Afghanistan due to his parents being Afghans, though he had never lived in Afghanistan. In the summer of 2015, Mohammed left Iran for a number of reasons and travelled to Sweden via Turkey, Greece, Serbia, Croatia, Austria, Germany and Denmark. When he had been in a refugee camp in Greece, he had his photograph and fingerprints taken and he filled out his personal details on a form. Now, Mohammed had heard that people under the age of 21 weren't allowed to travel alone, and so he wrote on the form that he had been born in 1994, rather than his real birthday. When Mohammed arrived in Sweden in December of 2015, he gave the immigration control the documentation he'd been given in Greece. He was subsequently allocated a place in accommodation designated for refugees in Sweden. After a short while, he was then moved to refugee accommodation in Arboga. And it was while Mohammed had been at this new accommodation that he had become friends with other refugees and someone called Jafar Jafari. Notably, every Friday, Johanna Möller and her business partner would visit the accommodation as part of their company's operations. One night, shortly after Christmas of 2015, Mohammed fell ill, which required the staff at the refugee accommodation to call for an ambulance. He was subsequently taken to a hospital in Kongsor and had to stay overnight. Johanna had heard the news of Mohammed's illness and informed the staff at the refugee accommodation that he could move in with her so she could look after him. Mohammed, upon hearing this offer, rejected the proposition and after being discharged from the hospital, returned back to the refugee accommodation Now not long after, Johanna offered for him to stay with her once more and the staff actually told Mohammed that he might as well accept the offer as Johanna lived in Esklatuna which was where there was a larger hospital Mohammed subsequently changed his mind and agreed to the new arrangements When he arrived at Johanna's place, she told him that he could sleep in her bed that night and it was from the very first evening that Mohammed stayed with Johanna that they began a sexual relationship Mohammed had stated from the day that he moved in with her that he wanted to return to the refugee accommodation after a week or so but Johanna wanted him to stay She told him that the refugee accommodation he'd been in would shut down soon and that if he didn't stay with her, he'd have to go to a different refugee place for adults Mohammed chose to stay after believing the lies that Johanna fed to him when Johanna was at work, Mohammed would do the domestic chores around the flat. Two weeks after the sex scandal came to light in the summer of 2016, Johanna began talking to Mohammed about her parents. She told him that her parents had not been good people, that her father had allegedly raped her when she had been 10 years old. Johanna claimed that she had kept this assault secret as she had loved her father, but she now hated her parents and wanted their heads to be removed from their bodies an actual thing that she said. She further said that she'd made up her mind before asking Mohammed to kill her parents by following her plan. Now I have to quickly note that by this point her parents had actually cut her off financially, um, which kind of plays into the motive here. Initially, Mohammed told Johanna that he didn't believe her and that she'd got him confused with a murderer. He insisted that he didn't want to commit any murder, and that it would be best for them to both go their separate ways. But the pair didn't end up going their separate ways. Rather, over the course of about two months, on eight to ten separate occasions, Johanna brought up the idea that Mohammed should kill her parents. Each time she brought it up, she would nag Mohammed about it for a couple of hours, often muttering quotes, ''both shall die''. At one point, according to court records, Johanna suggested to Mohammed that he should go to her parents' apartments and kill them there. She even claims that she had asked her son Alexander to get the keys to the apartment. The final time that Johanna brought up him murdering her parents before the events of the 3rd of August 2016 was the last straw for him. And Mohammed broke, telling Johanna, Okay, then I will go and do it. As we discussed earlier, on the 2nd of August 2016, Mohammed, Johanna, Johanna's son David and a man called Jafar Jafari who Mohammed had become friends with at the refugee camp had been at the family holiday home packing furniture and other possessions into a moving truck Jafari Jafari was an Afghan immigrant who had been in a relationship with Johanna's daughter Julia Blumsterland. The group departed shortly after Johanna's parents had arrived, Muhammad greeting them from a distance, before taking the moving truck to the self-storage unit that Johanna had rented. The rest of that day consisted of Johanna and Muhammad running general business errands. On the day of the murders, on the 3rd of August 2016, Muhammad awoke at around 11 to 11.30 am, and immediately noticed that Johanna hadn't been at home. Mohammed decided to go out to hang out with some friends for the day, during which he ingested drugs and alcohol. At about 7pm that evening, Johanna sent him a text asking him to come back home, and so Mohammed did as he was told. He brought home with him some cocaine, and after a while, he and Johanna went out and sat in Johanna's car. The couple drove over to Johanna's company's car park and switched into the company's VW vehicle. Johanna believed that the VW would be, quote, more convenient. They then drove with Johanna in the driver's seat in the direction of Araboga, where the family holiday home had been located. Johanna once again asked Muhammad whether he would kill her parents, and Mohammed got angry with her. She said, quote, will you do it or not? And Mohammed responded saying, quote, you are already driving there, why are you asking? The pair arrived at the entrance to the family's holiday home, though they kept going down the road for about 100 meters before coming to a complete stop. Johanna and Mohammed stayed in the car for around 20 to 30 minutes as they talked about what was about to happen. Johanna asked Mohammed, Are you sure you want to do it? Mohammed replied by saying, I don't want to, but if I say no, are you going to go back? Meaning, are you going to drive us back to our apartments? Johanna told him no and asked Muhammad to quote, try it out. And so Muhammad accepted Johanna's request. She gave him a shirt and a pair of gloves and told him to put them on. Johanna then handed him a knife. She didn't tell Muhammad how he should get into her parents holiday home, but did tell him that they slept in a bedroom upstairs and that the stairs were located on the right hand side of the front door. She further told Mohammed to make sure that the downstairs lights had been switched off before entering the property And then she repeated a phrase she'd said so many times before to Mohammed. Both shall die Mohammed got out of the car and began walking towards the house and up the driveway When he got to the courtyard of the property, he sat down near the container that had been delivered a few days earlier and smoked for a short while After about 5 minutes, he walked towards the house Once he had been satisfied that the downstairs lights had been turned off, he went to the front door and tried the handle, finding it to have been left unlocked. Mohammed had told himself at this point that if the front door had been locked, he would have just returned back to the car, but it had been unlocked. Mohammed entered the holiday home and went up the stairs to find the door to the bedroom where Johanna's parents slept to have been ajar. He wanted to ensure that they were both fast asleep, so waited outside the bedroom for around 30 minutes and despite not wanting to, he entered the bedroom with the knife in his left hand and begun the horrific attack The attacks on Yoran and Anne had lasted only a handful of minutes Mohammed fled the house, certain that both of them had died and ran straight to the car, in which Johanna had been waiting She had fallen asleep during the attack and was suddenly awoken by Mohammed getting into the vehicle He had blood all over his clothes Johanna asked him what had happened and he told her to see for herself before telling her to shut up and drive The pair then raced back towards Johanna's company's office On the way, they threw the knife using the attack into a lake The pair got back into Johanna's apartment at around 1am Mohammed took off his bloody clothes and threw them into the washing machine with the help of Johanna They then went to bed. On the morning of the 4th of August 2016, Johanna woke Mohammed up after the police had informed her that her father had been murdered and that her mother had been in the hospital. According to some sources, Johanna began to get angry at Mohammed as her mother had survived. At 8pm that night, the police paid Johanna a visit to ask her some more questions, and throughout the interview, she cried. Though when the police left, she started laughing and said, am I acting well? At some point over the next few days, Johanna and Mohammed decided to flee to Thailand. The pair made their way to Stockholm, where they separated for their own journeys. Mohammed was to travel via car and Johanna via airplane. Though Mohammed was arrested as he tried to leave the country, and Johanna was arrested at the airport. They were both taken to Vastarus and were detained for three days. Mohammed and Johanna were ultimately released from custody after they both categorically denied any involvement in the murder of her father and attempted murder of her mother. After being released from custody, they travelled via car to Stockholm with the plan to leave Sweden and settle in Spain. Johanna told Mohammed that she would sort out passports and money for him and that she was going to inherit 10 million dollars. She further purchased brand new telephones for them so nobody else could contact them. Johanna then changed the plans and stated that they should go to Norway Mohammed tried to get into Norway but was turned away by customs though when he tried again the following night, he was allowed in without being stopped Johanna had arranged for a room to be booked in a hotel in Trondheim which Mohammed travelled to but on the way he was stopped by the police and was detained for two days He was then told that he had to pay a fine and that he had to leave Norway within 15 days due to immigration related offences Mohammed eventually made it to the hotel and once he checked in, he embarks on a 3 day long drug binge Johanna arrives at the hotel at the end of this binge and then they both decided that they were going to buy more drugs and have another binge They switched hotels the next day But their time was up The police arrested them at this new hotel and sent them back to Sweden Johanna and Mohammed were remanded in custody in September of 2016 and were questioned extensively Flags were raised by the insurance company that had provided the life insurance policy for Johanna's deceased husband, Aki, which saw the public prosecutor open a preliminary investigation of suspected murder. In November of 2016, Aki's remains were exhumed in order for a full forensic examination to be conducted. And as a result of this examination, Johanna was charged with the murder of her husband, Aki. These weren't the only additional charges brought against Johanna though. Fraud charges were filed against her due to Johanna attempting to take money from a life insurance policy less than a month after Aki had died. The insurance company had asked Johanna whether there had been any reason to suspect Aki's death had been caused by another person, to which she had stated it hadn't, which is fraud. Though, the life insurance policy itself was discovered to have been taken out by Johanna in Aki's name, with herself as the beneficiary, allegedly forging Aki's signature on the documentation. And this isn't where the charges stopped. Johanna attempted to bribe a prison officer while she had been remanded in custody so that she could post a letter without it being examined first. This saw an additional charge of bribery brought against her. Further, she allegedly threatened to assault two police officers saying "Quote." I hope the hospital has brought extra wheelchairs because there are a lot of people who are going to have their knees broken after this. Everyone who hurts me. And for that, further charges of threatening public servants were added to her charge sheet. The evidence that the prosecution had against Johanna and Mohammed was substantial. Forensic evidence uncovered the blood of Johanna's father Joran in the passenger seat of the company car used as the getaway vehicle for the murders. Further, DNA evidence that contained a DNA profile matching Mohammed was also located on Joran's remains. Footprints found at the crime scene were determined to have been consistent with the imprints that could have been left by Mohammed's shoes. This technical evidence laid the foundation of the prosecutor's case against Mohammed, though no physical evidence was uncovered to link Johanna to the murder of her parents, so the prosecution moved forward with other evidence. According to an article in the local Sweden, Quote, evidence used in the investigation includes knives, the blade of the knife believed to have been used as the murder weapon in the killings of the father, and letters. A book with notes has also been examined, as have telephone logs and text messages. Material linked to the woman's financial situation, and information about the woman being reported for a sexual offence in her company, for which her business partner expressed a desire to end their work together, has also been used by the prosecution. She instructed and directed the 25 year old, according to prosecutor Jessica Wenner. The man claims that during the summer of 2016, his girlfriend had attempted on several occasions to get him to murder her parents, to which he said no, and on the day that the murder place, he was under the influence of drugs. The female suspect, who is said to have transported her boyfriend to and from the summer cottage in a car and handed him the knife, has denied all charges. Among the evidence used by the prosecution is an interview with the woman's mother, who survived the attack and not only witnessed it, but also gave details about her daughter's relationship with money and the circumstances around the scene of the crime. There is also information from several of the female suspect's children that she asked them to cast suspicion on someone else, as well as lie about several things. A clear motive for why Johanna had done what she had was quickly established by the prosecution as being financially based. The case against the pair was set to be put forward on the 7th of August 2017, after a psychological evaluation of both Mohammed and Johanna had been conducted. Johanna, throughout all legal proceedings, maintained her innocence. The court examined heaps of evidence against Johanna in order to reach their verdict, including telephone logs, text messages, letters, and witness statements, which included statements from her mother and her children as we mentioned. The court also found no reason to doubt Mohammed's version of events on the night of the murder and attempted murder, quote, Mona's involvement was so great and so decisive that she should, like Mohammed Rajabi, be considered a perpetrator and not an instigator or complicit. On Monday the 21st of August 2017, the court found Johanna guilty for the murder of her father, and the attempted murder of her mother. She was also found guilty of instigating aggravated assault, gross fraud, attempted gross fraud, falsification of documents, bribery, and threatening a public servant. Johanna received a life sentence for these charges. The investigation into Johanna's involvement with the death of her ex-husband, Aki, continued following this sentence, the court claiming it to be impossible to believe it had been an accident or suicide. Mohammed was also found guilty for the murder of Joran and attempted murder of Anne, and he received a 14 year sentence. Mohammed's age actually became something of focus within the trial due to the Swedish law that a person aged under 21 cannot receive a life sentence. The prosecutors believed him to have been 25, though he had stated he was 20 years old at the time of the crime. Swedish medical experts were unable to conclusively state whether he had been younger or older than 21 years old, though the Swedish court obtained official documentation from the Iranian authorities which showed him to have been 20 at the time of the horrific attack. This was why Mohammed received just 14 years for his involvement, rather than the life sentence. The Swedish court also gave Mohammed a deportation order and banned him from ever returning to Sweden. Both Johanna and Mohammed appealed their convictions. On the 27th of February 2018, the court upheld the life sentence that Johanna had received, though they did actually acquit her of the suspected murder of her ex-husband, Aki. According to the local Sweden, quote, In a statement, the appeals court said that there were a series of aggravating circumstances concerning the death of Möller's former husband, whose death was initially treated as a freak accident and later as a suspected murder, but that the evidence presented in court was not enough to prove beyond reasonable doubt that he had actually been killed, thereby acquitting Möller of the charge. The court further upheld the 14-year sentence that Mohammed had received. Both Johanna and Mohammed were ordered to pay 314,000 krona or 38,500 dollars in damages to Anne, Johanna's mother, and 100,000 krona to Johanna's sister. In a case as complex and as horrific as this, we can only hope that the victims of Johanna and Mohammed have been able to move forward following the justice that has been served. What we do know is that according to court records, prior to the attack on the 3rd of August 2016, Johanna's mum, Anne, had been healthy and without ailments, but afterwards, she has suffered from anxiety, difficulty sleeping, and nightmares. Further, she has developed poor hearing, poor balance, and paralysis around the lower face. According to Anne, she suffers from slurred speech and difficulty eating most mornings she's unable to properly raise her right arm, and requires a lot of painkillers daily It must finally be noted that Anne refutes any of Johanna's claims that her father had molested her when she was young She says that during the alleged time, Anne had been a housewife and Joran had worked a lot and had never been alone with her daughters And that brings us to the end of our coverage of this case If you have a case that you want me to cover, head on over to requestacase.com and send in your submissions there you can also see what other people have submitted and place your vote on what I should cover so if you don't want to miss out on it giving me your input then head on over to requestacase.com make sure to subscribe to this channel and hit that bell icon so you can be notified every single time I post a brand new true crime video just like this one you don't want to miss out on my true crime deep dives which I do live here on youtube so make sure you subscribe for that and that's almost every Saturday at 10pm UK time Thank you once again to Magellan TV for sponsoring this episode. Grab your one month free trial using the links down below. Also, if you want to hang out with a small community of people who like true crime content, be sure to join our Discord server for free. You can find a link to that in the pinned comments and in the description. A special thank you to my Patreon members and channel members Belamethius, Nino Lover, MG, Bailey's Clubhouse, Katie from the Other Side, Michelle Johnston, Sherry L. Bandy. Lady Janice Mimi Fisher, Kirsty Jade G, Patricia Luna, Casey Monks, Samantha O'Hara, and Cicely Thomas. If you want to support this channel, get access to monthly case polls, audio versions of my videos, scripts, and more, hit that join button down below, or go to patreon.com forward slash Joshua Miles, and become a patron or channel member today. And with all that being said, I'll see you in the next case. A special thank you to all of my Patreon members for helping keep this channel afloat, but especially thank you to my lead investigators for all of your support. If you'd like to support this channel for less than $5 a month, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash Joshua Miles.